Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. This is the word of the Lord. If you pray with me. Gracious God, send, a, send upon us your grace of your Holy Spirit to grant us clarity and strength to empower our souls that we may be formed by your word, glorify you, and serve the world as your chosen people. Amen. And uh, my notes say here that you can all take a seat. Uh, So as we read through Psalm 82, I I couldn't help but see a pretty tense situation going on. I think we all noticed that. Um, And it's obvious on first glance that someone has done something wrong. And so wrong, in fact, that they find themselves in a pretty untenable situation. And I'm sure everyone in this room can bring to mind at least one situation like that. Something that was so problematic that it required someone else to step in and to find some sort of resolution. Unfortunately, situations like this are part of life. As I read through the text for this morning and thought about tense and problematic situations, weirdly enough, my mind kept coming to the Philadelphia sports landscape. And in the last 10 years, our area has had no shortage of somewhat tense and toxic situations around our major sports franchises. How often do we hear fans saying that a player, coach, general manager, owner, all of the above, need to be dealt with swiftly and harshly? How often have we seen players complain about the coaching, the ownership, the fans, or the media? And the more I thought about the Philly sports landscape and the tense positions we see within it, I began to center on one episode above the others. And surprisingly enough, and you can exhale now, Jim. This has nothing to do with Ben Simmons, James Harden, Doc Rivers, or anyone in the Sixers organization. Though that argument could be made that they've had enough tense situations in the last three years to last a lifetime. My mind instead goes roughly half a mile away from the Wells Fargo Center to Citizens Bank Park. So travel with me, if you will, way back to 2022. Uh, The MLB season is about to start, and Phillies fans are reasonably optimistic. The team had five All-Stars on their roster. Among those was 2021 MVP Bryce Harper. Key free agents were added, and it looked like the organization was finally showing the kind of ambition that fans had wanted for so long. As the season took off, that excitement began to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. With every loss, the Philly area was getting more and more frustrated, and they were leveling their frustrations at one man, Joe Girardi. Uh, the coach of the Phillies at that time, for those who don't know. Uh, Week after week, angry callers made their complaints known on the various sports radio stations. Angelo Cataldi, a radio host known for his calm demeanor and soft-voiced way of handling things, 
was whipped into a frenzy on air nearly every morning. Appeals were made to the Phillies owner and general manager that something had to be done. But the story doesn't end there. And this part is what I think separates this story from the dramatic sagas around the other problematic figures that we could think about. In early June of 2022, things finally reached ahead as Joe DiRardi was fired and replaced with Rob Thompson. Now, no one was incredibly optimistic, but the change was long overdue. And as we fast forward to the fall, something happened that no one would have thought possible. The Phillies made not only the playoffs, but the World Series. Citizens Bank Park was packed full of elated fans, people were climbing light poles in the city, and suddenly there was joy in being a Phillies fan all over again. Now, without looking at this season, I do think this episode, as trivial as it might seem, captures the feeling of this morning's text. Something originally good descended into a state of disarray, so much so that decisive action had to be taken. And that decisive action led to unexpected hope and joy. Within the church, we describe the process outlined with the words creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. There's actually a painting uh, by David Arms that was commissioned by Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee back in 2007, and it captures this idea beautifully. Um, so bear with me as I explain a painting to you all. Um, on the left, it's, it's a four-panel piece meant to be viewed from left to right, and on the leftmost panel is this beautiful tree. It's bearing one kind of fruit, and it looks delicious. It's great. There's birds in the tree, all sort of similar to one another. All seems to be going well. The colors are bright, and it looks like any tree we might see outside today. The second tree, though, is a bit more wintry. The colors are muted. The tree is without leaves or fruit, but unlike the winter, there's also crows in this tree. The image is definitely bleak. The third panel gives us the tree with leaves again, and a few butterflies starting to fly around it. There's also an image of the cross at the center of the foliage. Lastly, the far right image is of the same tree, but it now features many different kinds of fruit, as well as a whole array of birds of various colors, shapes, sizes. It's obvious that that fourth tree is truly thriving and making the absolute most of all that it was created and intended to do. So within our time this morning, I want to explore this rhythm of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation as we see it through the lens of Psalm 82. So from here, I want to take on four parts. An unprecedented action, an untenable situation, an unavoidable consequence, and an unbreakable hope. So let's kick things right off with this unprecedented action. And I, I think enough people within the church have talked about the creation of the world. We've heard a million times that in the beginning there was only God. I think we've all heard a lot of times that God had no need to create. He was perfectly complete, living as Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, communing together in perfect love. And the church has affirmed that for as long as it's existed for the most part. Yet for some reason, the universe and humanity still exist. Uh, in their book, The Mystery of God, Chris Hall and Steve Boyer describe the act of creation as solely the result of God's freely chosen act of unconditional, unconstrained giving. But not only does God create out of love and, and out of his giving, he takes joy in his creation. He calls it very good. But not only that, he remains involved with his creation intimately. And at this point, I'm beginning to feel like an infomercial pitchman because wait, there's more. We see God invite finite beings to take part in the administration of the cosmos. He allows Adam to name the creatures. We see God charge Adam and Eve with the task of subduing the earth, 
of expanding the idyllic beauty of Eden to the four corners of the world. When we get to Psalm 82, we see this same outpouring of love in this realm. We're told that God has taken his place among the divine council. In the same way God invites humanity to share in his work, he's allowed his angels into the party. And we see this same council mentioned in 1 Kings, as various spiritual beings are asked by God how they would deal with the corrupt king Ahab. And scripture reads, and I'll go in here, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and one said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. So we see God inviting these spiritual beings in on the party. And just a point of clarification before I move on, God is not beholden to these beings. He doesn't need their counsel or their advice. At no point in time was there ever a chance that God was going to cancel the incarnation because the angels outvoted him, right? But he invites them all the same. And to my knowledge, I can't think of another deity worshipped by humans who has a counsel that they don't need simply because they want to invite others in. This idea makes me think of how I let my son, who is two, he's right there, um, help out with uh, putting away his clothes. He knows where things go. He loves getting to help me. So I let him. If he stays at his grandparents' house for the night, I can put the clothes away. If he gets distracted and wanders off, I could either put the clothes away or remind him of what we're doing. If he throws a tantrum and refuses to help, that still doesn't fact stop the fact that the clothes are going to get put away. It only robs him of the joy of getting to help out. It's the same with God. There's no reality where all glory does not go to him and his plan is not accomplished, but he graciously invites us to take joy in his glory and goodness, which is truly unprecedented. So we have this unprecedented action, a God who invites us to take part in his infinite glory. So how do we possibly get to an untenable situation? The short answer here is, is sin and rebellion among both humans and angelic beings. And I think at this point it's really helpful to go back to the text of Psalm 82 and think about exactly who is being judged here. Now I could be wrong about this, but within its context I see this as God judging the gods of other nations. And I think the original audience would have seen it this way as well. And part of the reason I think we might be hesitant to, to accept that is, is our late mo modern Western mindset. We can tend to think that the other gods we read about are simply images of metal and wood that had no being or no power in them. And I see two problems with that line of thinking. The first is that it assumes the stupidity of ancient people. Uh, generally speaking, villages and towns wouldn't be gathering around to worship a supposed deity if they didn't have some actual collective experience where they saw that thing have some power and influence whether it's honest or dishonest. Um, so we can think of it this way. Your friend tells you they've met someone. They tell you things are going great. You may believe them at first, but if time and time again that significant other is sick or on vacation or moved to Canada or choose an excuse, you might stop believing that your friend met someone. Um, in the same way, these ancient civilizations would have to have encountered a spiritual being in a way that was credible enough for them to put the work in to build an altar or an asherah, or a high place, or a temple. 
And beyond this, uh, the other problem with thinking that these gods of other nations were totally non-existent, beyond the idols that were built for them, comes from Scripture itself. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God say that the gods of other nations don't exist. He judges them, he defeats them, he shows their powerlessness, he makes fun of them, but he doesn't claim non-existence. In Exodus, we hear that God judged the gods of Egypt. Even in the matchup between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, it seems to me that Elijah's taunts center around the powerlessness of Baal rather than non-existence. As we look at the New Testament, we see Paul referring to the other gods as demons and equating them with the powers of this world. He emphasizes that God has been victorious over them, but again, he never denies their existence. But his distinction that they are demons is important to us moving forward. While it's true that these demons are powerless before God, I think we all agree that angelic beings, either fallen or not, do indeed have powers that would be otherworldly to us. There's a reason that messengers from God introduce themselves at the same greeting most times. Do not be afraid. Right? So if we keep this in mind, I think we can get a picture of a being appearing and then demanding worship rather than saying, do not be afraid. Add this to some devious lies and other intimidation, and we can see how civilizations could fall into the worship of these other gods. With this worship and service to other gods drawn out, we can dive into how the situation might become untenable now. For that, I want to go back to Psalm 82. The verses we want to take a look at here are 2 and 5. Right? So, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And they have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I see verse 5 as a sort of reason for verse 2. We know that our God is all-knowing. We know that he has a plan. What we can forget is that demons don't have that knowledge. They don't have a plan. They know what's been released to them, but by no means do they have any idea what God's great plan actually looks like. In the same way, these false gods don't have the ability that God does to view our innermost thoughts. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a theme of God telling his people that he's not after big fancy sacrifices, he's after their hearts. In the case of the gods of other nations, it's the opposite. They can't see the heart and frankly don't care about it. In their pride, they want not only to taste the glory to see what it tastes like, they want to hoard up as much glory as they can get, which might be why they tend toward injustice, right? It's in line with the selfishness of these demons to want big, flashy offerings over ones that mean something. And it's within the same line to favor the rich and powerful, regardless of how they gain their riches or power, so long as the large offerings keep coming. And I can hear the question forming in some minds, that's really great, but how is this situation becoming untenable? Well, for starters, I think we can look at our own relationships with the idols of our current age. Sure, we don't have many Baal worshipers around anymore, um, but where Baal has shrunk, those same powers are standing behind all sorts of things ready to let us worship them. Things like sex, money, power, pride. They've grown to titanic proportions. And like I said, I'm not saying any of those things could be demonic in nature, but more so that demons that do exist are more than happy to see us worship and serve those things. It's our relationship with those things that is completely untenable. Pick any sin you like, and I'm sure you're willing to admit that its payoff never feels like enough. The law of diminishing returns doesn't come from Christian roots, but it fits. The more we chase after money, sex, control, and the other powers of this world, the more we need to satisfy ourselves. Not only that, but the intensity of the sin has to increase as well. 
The more I fall in love with my own pride, the more I'm willing to do to avoid it being broken. And I think we can all plug in something of our own lives that continues to take more and more and more of us without actually returning anything meaningful. And in a world that was created by and for a God who desires us to flourish, it's simply something that can't keep happening. The world cannot fall into sin, drawn to it by the powers of this world time and time again forever. There has to be some help from the outside, which leads us to the unavoidable consequence. Um, we've already determined that creation is very good and that God's goal for us is to flourish and share in his joy. We also know that sin and evil have marred that process to a point where things seem pretty bleak. What's fortunate for us is that we have a God who sees our plight, hears our cries, and takes action. From the fall itself, God has been very plain that the serpent's head would be crushed. And since we know that a crushed head is more serious than the foot injury of a bruised heel, we can infer that God takes the powers of this world to task and that it has always been a part of his unstoppable plan to do so. Psalm 82 lays out a pretty blatant sentence here as we read, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, I want to take a little bit of a look at exactly what this means. Um, and to get to a meaning, I think we need to talk about what it means to die like men. So I want to go back to Genesis. And there we find that men die by returning to the dust that they were made from. To an ancient reader, and to us mostly, dust is something so small, so meaningless, that we count it as nothing. So then, in a sense, dying like men means that these fallen beings will receive the thing they fear most, being reduced to nothing, largely forgotten and ignored, seen as insignificant. And in his biography of Anthony of the Desert, Athanasius of Antioch, who was an early church father, um, describes that the best way to interact with these fallen beings is ridicule and constant reminders that Christ is victorious over them, which brings the mi to mind the image of falling like any prince, right? Not only has Christ defeated sin, death, and the devil, he has totally toppled their kingdom. Like any prince, their days of ruling have ended, and someone new has taken their throne in this world, a throne which was never rightfully theirs to begin with. Um, I'm going to flip back here because I didn't do a so earlier. Um, and the, one of the reflection quotes in our bulletin this morning comes from Andrew Stephen Damick, who says, As Christ said when he was about to ascend to heaven, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is, it was taken back and returned to where it belonged. Right? And so, as God has his throne and his top of the throne of evil, I think naturally it goes on to say that in eternity, the name of Baal, Asherah, any other being like them, the thoughts of pride, greed, jealousy, anger, wrath, all of these sins are going to be thought of as little more than dust. But how does that come to be? Well, the, the easy Sunday school answer here is the resurrection of Jesus. Um, now, within the, the Orthodox tradition, Psalm 82, which we've read this morning, is usually read on Holy Saturday. Now, for those who don't know, that is the day right between Good Friday and Easter. The tagline, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations, is sung by both priest and congregation as they await the most joyous day of the year. Only hours later, as Saturday turns to Sunday, the church will begin to sing, Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. 
By willingly dying the death of a human, Christ breaks the powers of death and hell. To stay within this Orthodox tradition for just a bit longer, I promise, um, I feel I need to mention the depiction, a picture that they have, an icon in their church, uh, titled The Harrowing of Hell, which in their tradition is when Jesus descends into Hades and brought out with him all those who wanted to leave and embrace the glory of God. Now, I'm not going to get into minute theological arguments about this painting itself, um, but I do want to state on the record that it depicts something very well and something that I love every time I look at it. And that is how in every image, regardless of the tradition that is painted of this event, there is a demon being squished under Christ's foot as he stands atop the fallen gate of hell. While Christ is truly risen and enthroned and glorified now, though, his eternal kingdom is not fully recognized. Um, so despite this, this uh, consequence for evil, things aren't there yet, but we do have an unbreakable hope from Christ as he is stomping down the gates of hell. And we see that as the psalm ends. We get an extremely hopeful ending, right? For you shall inherit all the nations. But what does that mean? And how does it give us an unbreakable hope? I want to tackle that now in two pieces. Uh, a hope of freedom and a hope of glory. So first off, a hope of freedom, right? Because Christ has inherited every nation, that means that the powers of this world no longer hold any sway over us. Right? Jesus tells us that no man can serve two masters, and if we're owned by Christ, we are free from the demons of our sin, which is huge, because we are no longer slaves to our sin and our every urge. We have the ability to live out the type of right and just living that's called for in verses 3 and 4. We can help the fatherless, the poor, the needy, all of these things, living beyond ourselves. And some of you may sit there and, and be saying, well, that doesn't sound a lot like freedom. That sounds like a list of things to do. But I'd argue that true freedom is the ability to do the right thing rather than the thing we immediately desire. Um, the last verse of a song by late 90s, early 2000s Christian ska band, there's a phrase you didn't think you were going to hear this morning, Five Iron Frenzy comes to mind. Right? So in this last verse of their song, they say, so let me say what freedom means to me. It cannot mean to serve ourselves, that doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean to give the license to seek ourselves in everything. That would be slavery to ourselves. It isn't free. Jesus Christ, the only thing that freedom means to me. Right? So because Christ frees us, we no longer have to live under the bondage of every single thing that we want to do during the day. We can love others because we know that we've been loved. We can be generous to others because we know that we've been dealt with generously. Um, we don't need to go out seeking big, fancy offerings because that is the work of evil. Um, so Christ frees us from self-seeking. He frees us from our sinful fallenness and from becoming also the worst, most selfish versions of ourselves, right? If we constantly do whatever we want to do with no thought of others, eventually we get into what I would call a Walter White situation for those who watched Breaking Bad, what is it, 10 years ago now, right? He spends the entire time focusing on himself to the point that he becomes unrecognizable. Um, and a quick example of this, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and Bible scholar Stephen DeYoung mentions his father watching the Nuremberg trials with his grandfather. For those who don't know, the Nuremberg trials are when Nazi war criminals were tried in Germany. Um, after World War II, they were facing justice for the horrific crimes that they had committed. Um, he said his father leaned into the grandfather and answered, well, what do you think about this? And the grandfather answered, there but for the grace of God I go. 
thus saying it was only by the grace of God that he wasn't on trial for war crimes, that he hadn't committed these atrocities that we all think impossible. Um, but if we think through ourselves, my pride without any check for the next 30 years is unbearable. It's, it's, it's undoable, but thankfully Christ has saved us from that. Um, and it's the very grace of God that not only saves us from the wages of sin and death, but gives us the freedom to not continue in the action of sin. Right? Like I said before, these trials were some of the world's worst war criminals being tried for unspeakable crimes against humanity. Um, to believe that we could just as easily perpetrate such evil, if not for the grace of God, should rightly fill us with thankfulness at the freedom that we've been given from sin. So finally, we want to look at the hope of glory. And I'll stay really brief here. Um, within Christ inheriting all the nations, we receive the same invitation that Adam receives. Spread the glory and kingdom of God to the corners of the earth. In Christ inheriting the nations, we're given the Holy Spirit who has been with the Father and the Son through all eternity. The same Holy Spirit that dwelt with the apostles. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson actually refers to the Holy Spirit as the best friend of the eternal word of God. In Christ inheriting all the nations, we're brought into a family that spans all of time and become united to every believer who has ever lived, is currently living, and will ever live. And it is this unity of believers that forms the body of Christ in this world and the bride of Christ in the world to come. As we proclaim Christ in the Apostles' Creed, offer prayers to God, confess our sins, receive Christ at the Lord's table, and sing praises to the God who saves us, we will do all of these things united with believers across all of space and time, and will be joined in doing so by the God who spoke the world into existence. Even as we leave this building, as the church scattered, we carry with us the unity of Christ and continue to be surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses that Paul talks about. It is for this reason we are called to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus at this church to Collingswood and its surrounding boroughs, and how we know that we're never alone in doing that. It is because Christ has inherited every nation that we get to share in this glory and joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.